0: snuff production
1: Hello and welcome to Keeping Good Company, the podcast helping you build business success through culture and leadership. Today we'll be asking the question, why culture? With Kate Evans, Group Executive of People and Culture at Shape Australia. So really looking at how creating positive workplaces influences business success and how to build people up to reach their full potential. We'll also be joined by David Byram, Managing Director at Human Synergistics. We are talking today, why culture? And joining me, I've got the magnificent David Byram from Human Synergistics. David, welcome back.
2: Thanks, Jess. It's great to be back. We had a really good time on our first episode with you. So, looking forward
1: to equally good time today with a new guest. We do have a new guest. Now, before we get to our new guest, we're talking why culture? Bring us up to date. Why does it matter?
2: Oh, look, it's the word of the the millennial, isn't it? Culture. If you pick up any article, any newspaper, it's going to mention culture, sporting teams, not for profits, corporate Australia. Culture is the key to sustainable success. Unfortunately, as we spoke about in the first episode, a lot of people misunderstand what culture is and confuse it uh, with words like engagement, which is why it's great to have our guest with us today. But culture enables organisations to absolutely deliver, and they deliver for their employees, their customers, and their shareholders. That's the key, and that's why culture is important. And you're going to hear today that culture is led. It's led by leaders, and it's led by employees to build a sustainable culture, And you really need to lead your culture and live your culture. And what we know is people are people. And we actually can measure the aspirational or the preferred or the ideal cultural organisations. And across industry, across sector, across level, it's the same. Everybody wants to work in an organisation where they can be true to themselves. They're respected. They're making a difference. They're learning. They're growing. They're challenged and they're having fun. The challenge becomes is that their actual culture, their lived experience doesn't match their ideal, their aspirational culture. And what we're going to hear today is what happens when you get your aspirational and your lived culture aligned, and it's doable. And if you achieve that, that holy grail of we're living our ideal culture with our daily behaviors, our daily expectations, the organization will thrive. And that's what today's all about.
1: Also, today is all about fun. I really loved hearing you use the word fun, David, because our special guest is Kate Evans from Shape Australia. Kate, welcome. It is wonderful to have you with us today. And I mean, you are fun. You come to the studio. I will share with our listeners, your neck is slightly sore because you've been a bit of a daredevil, haven't you, recently?
0: Oh, thanks, Jess. I thought we weren't going there, but um, <laughs> look, look. always. <laughs> and if you're not having fun, why bother? <laughs> exactly.
1: Kate, for those listening, she was uh, with her kids on a trampoline over the weekend and you have your neck slightly sore, but that is not stopping you, is it?
0: Absolutely not. No, just um, one more ailment in, in the in the in the bag. Exactly. Now, tell us though, Kate,
1: about Shape Australia for those who are listening who mightn't be familiar with it.
0: Yes. So Shape, we're, uh, I guess, essentially a, a building contractor. So we specialise in the interior, fit out and refurbishment sector of the construction industry. We have about 500 people nationally, so in, in all states across Australia. And I guess uh, added into that to actually do the work, um, we have about 3,000 subcontractors on our projects on any given day. So Ultimately, even though we we build things, we are only in the business of people, and that's a lot of people yes. that you're looking after.
1: But in terms of your story, you began at that organisation as the office manager.
0: I did, yes, a very long time ago. Um, although, in some degrees, that almost eighteen years feels like yesterday, and I think that's testament to, I guess, the opportunities that the organisation's provided and the fact that every day I feel like I'm still growing and learning. So that's what kind of has kept me there.
1: So 18 years, that is a long time, isn't it? It is. Of course, your role has changed and you are now in charge of people and culture. What was it that led you there? Why did you see that opportunity?
0: I guess every aspect of of my roles in my early career was, you know, fundamentals of office management and executive assistant and those types of administrative-based roles. I was always drawn to the people aspects of those roles. And I found myself getting involved in in things I probably shouldn't have. Like um, what? Uh, like just if there was a, a challenge in the office, for example, you know, you're on the ground, you are, you can hear what people are actually saying and kind of giving that information back to those in charge, to the leaders. So I think that's where my passion for leadership and culture really still stems from is that, you know, D.B. said in the intro that the misalignment that we can have between what we want and what we're trying to create and actually what happens in practice. So... I've genuinely always felt with the right information, the right expectations, all those sorts of things that I can make a difference and together as as leaders, we can make a difference to to get that environment that we want. And you have made a difference. As
1: you said, early on in your career, you'd sort of recognise where there might be a problem happening, but clearly though, your superiors recognised your skills in listening
0: to what was going on and to solving problems. Yes, I think so. and and when we when we started, we only had about 40 people nationally, and we were never going to have a HR department. let me let me state that. HR was, was definitely what you know just a department that gets in the way and and those sorts of things. But where we saw a need uh, or where I created maybe an opportunity for myself was understanding that the business had some growth aspirations, you know seeing the time and effort that we our managers were spending on, just simple things like recruitment just by offering to help and solving that problem around, you know, uh, finding people more cost effectively than using recruitment agents, for example, and finding better quality candidates because I actually understood the organisation. And from there, I guess, just have kind of taken every opportunity as it's come along um, and, you know, worked to get the best outcome for the business.
1: David, listening to Kate there talk about her ability early on to listen to what was happening, to listen to where there might have been some conflict and issue.
2: Yeah, and it's the power of that listening, right, and sensing what's happening. As SHAPE has grown, they've recognized that their true difference is in their people. And if you really want to make a difference, you've got to understand where your people are at and therefore listen to your people and really take on board what they're saying. And to be sustainable, the world's moving. The world's moving very fast. And what SHAPE have done is they've stood the test of time and they've actually managed to move over time, and they've grown their people. And I think you can't get a better testament than Kate. Kate has started, but now not only looks after people and culture within Shape, also looks after the marketing team and communications within Shape. So all of a sudden, the power of listening is pulling all of that together uh, in the Kate's portfolio what she does.
1: That is a enormous role, Kate. Tell us a little bit about their. David mentioned the changes that have happened within Shape. What, what did it used to be like? to now?
0: Yeah, well, I'll, I'll talk about it from, we, we measured our culture back then, thankfully. So we have got the, the data to, to kind of back up the feeling of, of what the culture was like. I guess when I started, and I guess the true DNA or core of our organisation is that people focused by nature. Um, our founders are those people and they wanted to create a company that was really special and to be people focused. So that is true to who we are as an organisation. And I guess, even though I never had a, a HR kind of mentor early on in, in my career, I had these really great people that cared um, in leadership that I was kind of learning from. Over time, as, as the company was successful and grew, we had rapid growth in late 2010 kind of period, where we effectively doubled the business overnight. That's what it felt like anyway. And with that growth, we lost our way. Just bringing in people from outside, um, it's kind of that smash and grab. We needed people to reach those business targets And as a result of that, we kind of went away from those true core values um, around people and care and those sorts of things. So what happened was, yes, we were a large company. You know, we were turning over lots of work, but we were also turning over lots of people. And the environment wasn't what we were known for. It was very much around, you know, my patch and, you know, this is what I need as opposed to kind of that one in all in that we were kind of, you know, we, we were known for. And so as a result of that, our culture, when we measured it at the time, was telling us that it was an aggressive, defensive environment, that command and control, you know, do what you're told when I tell you kind of way, which, you know, hadn't been the experience for my probably first, you know, five to 10 years at SHAPE.
1: So the data revealed that to you? Yes. And data is important, isn't it, David?
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's such a good point, Jess. The integrity of data is key. And look, anyone can ask a question. Anyone can write a question, but the question I would ask is, is it the right question? Because what we know, if you don't get the good data, you can actually chase the red herring. You can lead up a garden path. And often organisations will ask questions and they misconstrue how they ask the question. They work on stuff that is actually not a problem. So making sure you have valid, reliable data and good questions is key. So what's the measure of that? How do you get good questions? Well, the best questions are the ones that have stood the test of time, ones that have a degree of – and I'm a data geek, right? So <laughs> I love stats. Right? Yeah. I'm just a geek. <laughs> um, the ones that have stood the test of time have got some real academic validity behind it and reliability because I'll get geeky a little bit, right? When you ask questions, you're actually preloading the brain, So my response to question two and three is determined by question one. So all of a sudden, you've got to ask questions in a certain order and you've got to maintain that order if you're going to compare over time. So you want to be able to compare to something. And it's like when, uh, for those on the podcast, have children, they come home and they go, I've just got 90% of my maths exam. And your first reaction is, woohoo, 90%, the best I ever could get was 70. That's outstanding. Well done. And then out of curiosity, you might say, and what was the class average? And they go, oh, the class average was 98. Your woohoo is now, oh, my God.
1: Oh, but come on. (laughs) I just want to step in here for the parents. It doesn't matter.
2: (laughs) It doesn't matter.
1: In terms of maths. Of course, other sorts of data matters. Correct.
2: (laughs) In terms of maths, it probably doesn't matter. (laughs) But now this basis of comparison So what are you comparing to? So really good data and really good questions allows you to compare relative to what we like to talk in the geeky world is a a research group or a norming group and organisations that are truly looking to make a difference will recognise where they are in terms of a broad group, not an industry group. What we know when we look at data, when you look at the average across industries, they're the same. So within industries, what does that mean? There's organisations that are doing it really well. Within industries, there's organizations that have a world of opportunity. They're about the same. But it's where do I compare across this broader data group? Because if you look only with industry, you might be the best of a bad bunch. And as Kate will talk about, we're in a tough market for recruiting. You've got to step out. And if you're hiring someone today, you're not competing against your industry. You're competing against all industry to recruit. So you've got to make sure that you're being... The best you can be to attract the best talent, and then your culture is going to allow you to retain the talent. So, my only comment would be on data. To summarise, is make sure you understand the question you're asking. Make sure you know that question is valid and reliable, and it comes from a research group. And the geeky question to ask is, where's your academic proof?
1: So, David, when it comes to collecting the data, what's involved? What do you do?
2: Yeah, really good question. Uh, there's a couple of different data sets you got to collect. So I think the first thing is to collect data on the behaviors. And the best way to collect the data on the behaviors and we talked about the questions to make sure you have good questions is to use that academically robust survey or diagnostic. And it's a bit it is a diagnostic like. Right? So it's not taking your blood pressure, it's like your full MRI scan of your body. So getting the right questions and then surveying the population So going to your employees and collecting that data from your employees and then running it through the algorithms to compare it to those research groups and those norming groups to actually see where you stand. So that's data piece one. You need to understand the behaviors. So we collect that through diagnostics. The second piece of data you've got to collect is all the business metrics. So organizations are generally pretty good at collecting their business metrics, but they might not actually have them at a functional or a team level. So you've got to work with the team to actually get those metrics that are important to them. And that's where we use the term a balanced scorecard. So this balanced scorecard we spoke about is the way that organisations actually drive success. And that's typically what everybody looks at from the executive team, the board of directors, and even the investors for those listed companies is how are those organisations performing. And the reason we refer to it as a balanced scorecard is it hitting my three Vs? And you might remember from episode one, I talked about the three Vs that we're driving for culture. Employee value, customer value, and shareholder value. When we talk about the ballot scorecard for shape, they're hitting safety, retention, they're hitting customer experience, they're hitting financial metrics in terms of EBIT, and EBIT's their number one, more than revenue, actually, because uh, EBIT's important.
1: EBIT is?
2: Ah, Earnings before interest and tax. So how profitable
1: are we really? Okay. And Kate, so when you get this data,
0: what then do you do with it or how how do you distill it? So since we get that culture data back immediately, I want the breakouts. So it's all good and well on the surface to look at it, but I want to understand in across every state, different leadership teams, all those subcultures that DB was referring to earlier, my leadership team now is so obsessed by their culture. Like from the moment they know that survey has closed to the moment we get that back, that's all I hear. Have we got the data yet? Have we got the data yet? So our leaders know that that is our leading indicator to how that balanced scorecard is truly going to fare at the end of the financial year. So they're, they're obsessed with our culture as much as they are with those balanced scorecard or those tangible outcomes, is which is what the culture delivers. We have a rolling average every month, so we know um, how, what our safety stats are looking like. We know what our people retention is looking like. We know our customer experience because we survey every customer, every project. This helps our team to really see that long-term, that we're on the right track. The wheels aren't going to fall off anytime soon because we then know that business performance will as well.
2: It's a nice way to put it, that uh, culture sustainable long-term success – So organizations are generally good at tracking some of their lag indicators, those business outcomes. But what's it going to be like in six months' time? What's it going to be like in 12 months, two years? So you've got to understand what's driving those outcomes, and what's driving those outcomes is culture. So really getting a good handle on what your culture's like, and you're not going to measure that every day. Understanding where your culture's trending, what's going on in your culture, that's going to be your best predictor for your long-term success. And it's going to become more and more important as we move ahead and society's becoming more aware and people have a choice of who they want to work for. What I say is often, you know, brand attracts. Shape is a great brand. So your brand attracts. But what actually retains your people once they walk in through the doors is your culture. Does your culture match that brand experience that's on the facade? If it doesn't match, people have a choice, right, and they'll go, I don't want to work here anymore and therefore you lose your talents. And then what happens over time is your brand changes in the market. And that's where aspects of promoter scores help because now all of a sudden we're not an organisation people want to work for.
1: Kate, what I'd like to ask you is that you got those findings back from those questions. The workplace, as you said, was an aggressive one what then did you have to do to change that and and how difficult was it
0: yeah for us we just looked at um our leadership team across because it was uh, i guess prior to that measurement um i guess it's fair to say we had embarked on on some leadership coaching if you like so really working on ourselves as individual leaders and the impact that we have and through that process it was really clear that we had some some leaders that were on board on that bus Heading in the direction the company had decided to head in, while we also had some that didn't want to change. They liked their aggressive style; it got them results, and everything else was just a bit, you know, soft and fluffy. So it wasn't for them. Thanks very much.
1: And how do you deal with that then? How do you convince people who are saying, "No, no, this works for me. I don't want any part of this"?
0: I don't think you can convince. If you you, you've, you can give every like anything, you can give everyone all the information. You can take them on the journey. You can you can try coaching hundreds of people that I've coached over my career, you just know the ones that will kind of get there. And straight up now, I think the ones that just aren't interested. And until they have that interest, I don't think, you know, you can't make anyone change. It's like anything. So for us, you know, we had to make some really tough decisions for those that didn't want to get on the bus to head in the direction that that we had decided um, was right for our business. Um, yeah, we had to make those tough goals to say this might not be a place that you're going to thrive moving forward because... The expectation is around kind of having constructive leaders in our business for that long-term growth, not the short-term success that that aggressive, defensive kind of delivers.
1: And then how then do you move forward from that? So you've got people who you're thinking, no, they're not, they're not on board with us. We put them aside. But then to really shift and change and to make sure the people who are there still with you are on board
0: all the time, how do you do it? Um, well, you've got to do it together. So it's it's about understanding at, the, at that vision and that purpose being really clear for everybody. I think expectation is everything. So you know, what are we here for? What what does success look like? And then how do we hold ourselves accountable to it? Because it's really easy to fall off that bus sometimes. You know, when when different pressures you know hit us from the side, and you know, just various challenges that we can go back to those old ways and that short term success rather than kind of long term. So you've got to be there and, and, and be in a position and have relationships to hold each other accountable, to ask those questions. Is that really the right thing to do in this situation? So and unless you can kind of be all on the same page and have that shared vision, it is really difficult. And to get people on the same page, you talk there about coaching. What does that look like in your world? Coaching for us is is asking questions, essentially, is the best way I can kind of describe it, because That's how we hold ourselves accountable as a leadership team at Shape is uh, in in a really non-threatening, constructive way is that, you know, hey, what happened there? Or tell me more about that situation or, you know, "What what were you trying to achieve? So those genuine open questions, it's a really nice way sometimes to highlight where we might be a bit off track. And in terms of what you've achieved now as a business, give us a sense of what it's like now from where you've taken it to now. The biggest thing is that sense of camaraderie, that sense of fun. We're in it together. We genuinely are. Do we agree on everything? Absolutely not. Do we feel really safe from a psychological point of view to to talk openly with each other without question? We've all got different viewpoints. We've all got probably different agendas when we come together as a leadership team. But the way we ground ourselves is always to kind of engage in that conversation. Hang on a minute. What are we here to achieve? So always kind of bringing it back. DB did a, a session with us many, many years ago, where he he pulled us together, and actually, just one simple exercise was to ask us, "Which team are we on?" And interestingly, for the, most of us, we all kind of went there. You know, I'm here to represent the people and HR, and the safety guy was there to represent, you know, safety and and environmental outcomes and and those sorts of things. When actually, well, what team are we on? We're on just we're on the shape team together, and. We all still talk about that and, again, we can sometimes use that if we need to bring each other back to, Well, yeah, which team are we on first and foremost? That's very powerful,
1: David. It must be for you to hear that, that Kate still remembers that question. It's humbling. It's good. And it's
2: a powerful, it's a powerful insight. It's easy to think that I'm here representing my function and it's a bit provocative to say who's your primary team but it's very powerful because... Ultimately, we all want to make a difference together. And this leads us to culture, right? We're we're not single islands operating. We bounce across each other, right? So how do we actually influence each other and make make that difference together? So having a recognition that all my colleagues here are actually supporting me and my job is to support my peers. And our primary team is not our functional team, but it's the lead team I belong to. And that's at all levels of an organisation. So the executive primary team versus the next levels down and so forth in terms of who is their primary team. And until they have that belief that our primary team is my peer group, you won't be a champion team. You'll still be a team of champions.
1: A a team of individuals. So, Kate, to then continue, I suppose, a successful team, what have you had to do? Have you had, had to make changes to make sure people don't get
0: complacent? Um, I think, yes, I think we're always evolving. I think we're always kind of questioning, um, our approach, the way that we're doing, what's working, what's not. And and we have, I guess, something that we've termed feedback for growth. It's a concept that it's, again, just uh, something that we can all have in place to be able to give ourselves, give each other feedback on how we, we're going. And that's obviously, um, talking about, you know, hey, this is what you've done, what I've observed, which is fantastic. Well done. Keep doing it on conversely obviously you know something that we might need to do a bit differently and I think that is really really important if we don't keep evolving if we don't keep looking at our business especially in times like this everything hitting us from the side then we're going to go backwards and so for us it's always around well you know what do we need to be doing to kind of stay in front and how do we need to be working better together all those sorts of things you mentioned there the times, I mean, I think it's been unprecedented with COVID, with
1: lockdowns, oh. the, the the changes to workplaces and how we do things. How have you been able to to sort of innovate and keep people inspired during this?
0: Oh, I don't know if we've been keeping people inspired. I'm not sure um, in saying that our culture results just came back and, and they're good.
1: Well, congratulations. Uh, thank you. <laughs> so that was the data
2: that showing you. the data, you. yes.
0: Well done. Um, culture results
2: were great.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the last 12 months has been extraordinary um, without without question. And as business leaders, there's lots of times we were in a room thinking, have we got this right? We had to make decisions that, you know, were unprecedented. We just had to make them and move forward with the philosophy that, again, it was always about care. What Are we putting our people first? You know, how are we getting through this? So we made the decision really early on that we weren't going to make any fundamental changes to our business, we were going to write it out so that we could come out on the other side with our people in place knowing that we'd need them to kind of get going again. That was really tough when we were shut down effectively for nearly six months across, you know, different states, you know, reduced workforces, supply chain issues, all those sorts of things. So that's, that's had a big impact on the bottom line as it has for all construction companies and many other industries as well that's been really tough. Are we making the right decision for the long term? Are we still going to be viable? But at the end of the day, I think we just s- stood true to that core of, you know, invest in our people and the rest will be okay.
1: In that sense of
0: being a leader of people
1: during this time, what did you have to draw on to make sure
0: that you could pass that on to, to your teams? Open communication. We just had to draw on the fact of just just tell people how things are, even though we didn't know. So we again made that decision really early on and we promised our people we would be fully transparent the whole way through. We did things like our CEO would do weekly Zoom meetings for all all staff to dial into. Some weeks we'd have an update because, you know, we were closed down again or or something that, you know, meaningful to talk about. And other weeks we had nothing but just to say, look, hang in there guys, you know, we're here. We don't know much, but we'll tell you when we do. So Again, we, we just took that approach of tell people everything, even though we didn't sometimes have everything to communicate. But there was no surprises, I, I guess, that way. And I think that did help with the way some people were feeling, especially the vulnerability around, you know, job security and those sorts of things. So, again, we kept saying, you know, jobs are safe. This is what we're going to do. First and foremost, I think, always tell, tell your people, talk to your people, even, though, even if you've got nothing to tell them. And sometimes that's hard because as a leader, you're expected to know everything and you're supposed to be concrete in your decisions. And sometimes you can't be. So, you might as well be authentic and tell people how it really is.
1: David, those words there of Kate's authentic openness, communicating to people and the difference that has made during this very difficult time. It's tough. And sometimes you don't know.
2: And the best response is we actually don't know because there was a lot of unknowns over the last two years and there still will be some more future unknowns ahead of us. And if we don't know, your best response is to be open and say, I don't know. Because people, if you don't communicate, people will fill the void and they'll fill the void with probably the worst that's going to happen rather than the best. But if you can show that you've been open and when you're here, you're open, you're transparent, people won't fill it with the worst. If you say you don't know, they'll go, they'll tell us when they know and we don't need to worry at this point in time. And it's interesting because all of a sudden now I have this world of trust that I'm building up because I'm being authentic and I'm respected as a leader and as a leadership team and I know they're going to look after me. And that translates to business results. And what you see, and I don't want to steal any of Kate's thunder, but what you see in shape is they have a balanced scorecard, a very robust balanced scorecard If you look at the metrics from when they had that aggressive, defensive, dare I say, command, control, dog-eat-dog culture to where they are today and as they've grown that ability to care and support, be curious, be creative, be open, be authentic, it's actually changed their ballot scorecard. But I shouldn't steal any more of Kate's thunder.
0: (laughs) Kate, tell us. Tell us more, please. Well, look, culture drives business performance. That's our experience. And I guess now we have, well, when we first found the correlation, I think, which is what just drove a lot of our change. It, it drove a lot of those leaders to want to get on board, I guess, to answer your earlier question. What we discovered at that very first point of retesting again was this direct correlation to business performance when we looked at the, the demographics of our data. So even though we had uh, still, I guess, at the core, our culture looked okay on the surface, when we went underneath and really started to break it down, the correlations were, weren't were great in some of those states where we had this aggressive leadership, which we knew about. I guess that started the fascination around data for us and I guess what we've now seen is in our seventh year of measuring that against um, our balanced scorecard is the correlations are identical year on year, state on state, problem or problem, if that makes sense. So um, for us, it's it's the measurements around our people and so the rate in which they leave us or they choose to stay, our diversity and inclusion, promotion, percentages, all those sorts of things. Um, safety, obviously, in, in the construction industry, it is our number one priority that, that people go home safe and that they, they work in a safe environment. Obviously, financial performance, quality of, of the product and customer experience. I was thinking, what's the fifth? so the rate in which our customers choose to buy us. And as a result of that, you know, we've just seen year on year all of those stats go in the right direction in line with those culture results.
1: And that is
0: phenomenal when you think about it, when you think about
1: what we have been through as a community, as a workforce, with COVID, with shutdowns, with the impact on the construction industry. It is, I mean, you must feel surely so... I don't want to know. If vindicated is the right word, but just rewarded and enriched that this is what is happening to your organisation.
0: Absolutely, and and I guess this this year, waiting for our culture results, I, I must say, I, <laughs> DB knows this. Um, I was feeling sick, if I if I'm honest, because of the uncertainty that we've been through in the last twelve months, um, and I wasn't sure how they were going to come through. So for us to have the culture coming back in as it has, even through these times as I've now just kind of talked to all of our leaders about now saying, it just goes to show how deep that culture is. We're still telling our people how we expect them to behave in order to kind of thrive and, and get ahead and how they should interact with each other. We haven't deviated from that, even though everything's a little bit uncertain still and there's lots of pressures from supply to margin and all those sorts of things. Our people are still hearing from us that you know we're going to get through this and we're going to get through it you know in the right way together. Now David that must be music to
1: your ears as well.
2: Kate's hit on something very subtle that in organizations subcultures absolutely exist either at a functional level or a geographic level or at a team level the data says that different subcultures lead to different business outcomes. And if you want to get Consistent business outcomes that a high performing team would be. And some of those metrics Kate just talked about are fundamentally important to success. Like, we want to make sure we're retaining our best people. We want to make sure that our people are going home safe. We don't want our people to be hurt. We want to ensure we're delivering on our promise to our customers. So, we want to have that high quality of excellence that we deliver. We want to make sure that our financial backers, our shareholders, are getting a return because we want them to invest and continue to invest in leadership, invest in culture, and invest in projects. And what Kate has shown is that, and what the SHAPE team have shown, is that by actually building a constructive culture, you tick all of those measures, and you can identify when it's not quite so right. And it's not that it's bad, it's just not quite as right. So we can now actually place some focus there. We can support those leaders, support those teams. And I remember when I first saw the correlations, and there's been some research studies done, where they lined up their geographic states. The states who had leaders that were leading by example, being open, being curious, were creating cultures that were supportive, engaging, let's make a difference together, let's all work together, were generating outcomes that were substantially higher and more sustainable than the states that weren't.
1: Finally, Kate, I wanted to ask you, for people who are listening, what are one or two key points that you think are key to having a really
0: good culture? An engaged leadership team that understand what your business success or what, what your business is striving to achieve is is fundamental. Any organisation, well, it'll have its own systems, its own structures, its own approach to doing business, but it's leaders that actually influence how we actually achieve that. So if you haven't got your leadership team collaborating and working together, uh, it's its much more difficult, I think, to achieve. David, some final thoughts?
2: Wow, where do I start? There's so much. Um, <laughs>
1: there is. My head is still reeling with data. <laughs>
2: um, uh, so let's start with data. Capture great data. I'm not going to say good data. I'm going to say great data. Really understand the data you're getting and the questions you're asking because you can be really led and make sure it's a comparison to a research group so you know where you're going. So number one, get good data. Number two, we know culture drives performance. Leadership drives culture, but culture drives leadership. So you've got to work and you heard from Kate around engaged. I absolutely agree. Having a fully committed, curious, courageous leadership team is the key. And then that will drive your culture and your culture will drive what the leaders do. And sometimes, as Kate said, some leaders might elect to depart and that's okay. My final comment would be don't assume and don't rest. Your culture is alive, all right? It's a living organism. Just because it's breathing and well today, if it heads into stark, stormy, treacherous waters uh, like we have in the last two years, you've got to work at it. In fact, you've probably got to work at it harder. And on that note, I think I'd have to congratulate Shape because not only have they maintained – the work they're doing, they've actually worked harder to keep their culture, which, to what Kate said, it's going to set them a good stead for the
1: future. Thank you, David. And Kate Evans, thank you so much for your insights and for sharing your success story with us today. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Keeping Good Company. In the next episode, we'll be chatting with Guy Strong, Country Head at Sandos Australia and New Zealand. About culture in action to discover the relationship between culture and performance. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Human Synergistics, hosted by me, Jess Rowe, produced by Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens, with audio production by Kelly Folston. Listener.